Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 269. We're literally now at the closing of a unique day called Shiv'osr B'Tamuz Nitche, the 17th of Tammuz, which this year, like last, fell out on Shabbos yesterday. So of course Shabbos overrides the fast of the 17th of Tammuz. So we have a Shabbos Shiv'osr B'Tamuz Nitche, it's pushed off to Sunday if Mashiach doesn't come in between different rules and laws, but bottom line is the fast is on Sunday. We're now at the conclusion of that in this part of the hemisphere where I am right now in New York. And literally in the next hour, probably when this program ends, the fast and that day and the day will end. We've spoken about this topic last year, of course, in episode 219, as well as episode 124, which was four years ago, when we also had the same schedule. So I'm not going to repeat everything I've said then, I'll just focus on a message and lesson for each one of us, being that it is a unique situation, and quoting the Rebbe, when it was a Yud Shiva Asir Batamaz Nidche in Tovshin in the summer of 1964, it was a very long Fabrengen, and the Rebbe then emphasized the expression of the Gemara that there's even a Havamin, a Kivin the Itche Itche. Since the fast is pushed off, it should be pushed off altogether. And the Rebbe Marash's expression that that's what Taka should happen, that this tchia, this delay, this uh, postponement should postpone and forever the fast that we should have already experience in the words of the Prophet and the words of Maimonides, Rambam, and Sofil Chastanius, that these days, these fast days, will be cha- transformed to holidays and days of celebration. When? When Mashiach comes, when we will then see the way Chassidus explains it, especially in the Rebbe's talks, the many talks the Rebbe gave on Ashivasar Batamas, whether it was a regular schedule or one like this, in the Rebbe's Divrei Kfushin, which are words of uh, inspiration, words of, um, of uh, introspection that the Rebbe began actually delivering in the year Tov Shalamet Ches, Asar Batavis, the year that the Rebbe had the heart attack, many things the Rebbe added, and that was one of them, that on fast days the Rebbe would speak. And Shavasar Batamas, the central theme was that uh, is that a ta- fast day in general is called a Yem Rotzen Hashem. It's a desirable and auspicious day. Through fasting, we are doing tshuva and we're reaching to God and it has an ability because the certain door is open. It's still a sad day because the door is only accessible through, through fasting and through penitence and so on. But, Chassidus explains, there's no such thing as a negative without a positive. And what is the positive? That within the primias, within the inner meaning Samach Tzedek also explains this in the Maimonim of Oyratayra Masay, which of course is in these weeks, we read them in the three weeks, explains that every Yerid, every descent, always has a purpose of a higher ascent. So within, embedded, within the darker moment, is really the purpose of it being transformed. It doesn't say it will be eliminated. It will be transformed. And transformation means you take the same energy, which was once directed in a negative way, like think of it like black energy, like a black hole, and you redirect it with a new intensity, but same intensity or even more intensity toward a positive one, which will happen when the Mashiach comes, and these fast days will then become days of celebration. So when we're standing in a day which is a nitche, so yes, unfortunately Mashiach didn't come yet, maybe it'll come before this end of this program, but we don't just think of the day as a negative and let's move on, we think of it as a day that propels us toward the positive, like Rabbi Akiva, when he saw the destruction of the temple, when he saw the temple mount that was uh, desolate. So in contrast to his colleagues who cried 
Rabbi Akivan probably also cried, but the Gemara says that he laughed in the end of Makis, and he smiled and laughed because he saw the fulfillment of the prophecy as he explained to them. And that's when they said, Akiva Nechamtani, Akiva Nechamtani, Akiva, you have consoled us, Akiva, you have consoled us. As we've discussed in previous years, Rabbi Akiva, who had special eyes due to a person who paid a heavy price and came from darkness, till 40 he had not learned any Torah. And he grew up, either he was a convert or a child of converts, and became the greatest Kula Libad Rabbi Akiva, the greatest Talmudic sage. So he had those special eyes that saw in the dark, he saw the light. In the negative, he saw the positive. And as such, that's why Rabbi Kiv also says, Al-Hain La, when, when the Aser Sadibris, the famous disagreement, Rabbi Yishmol said, when they, when they didn't heard the Ten Commandments, when they heard the positives, you shall do this, they said, hey, of course, we will. When it came to the negatives, etc., they said, we won't. Rabbi Kiva disagrees. He says, when they said the positive, for sure, they said yes. And when they heard the negative, they also said yes. Yes, meaning, yes, we will not do. So is this just semantics? Explains the Rebbe, no. It's two different perspectives. Rabbi Shmuel was a Kohen Gadol. He saw the world through Er Yosher, through illuminating light like a tzaddik. So he sees things as they are the good. So when there's a negative, you avoid it. Rabbi Akiva saw the dark. And in the dark, he also saw the yes. In the no, he also saw the yes. And that's what we look at in the day of 17th of Tammuz. We see the yes and the no, which means the positive growth that has come out of these thousands of years of being in a desolate world, in a golus, with all the challenges, and uh, we should never hear from them again, but we've suffered greatly. Now we live relatively in a comfort. We have to make sure to march it to the finish line and bring the geula, use the, this, this day like this as a catalyst to wake us up. We're entering now to the three weeks, which is the beginning of the three weeks. Of course, the three weeks are focused on that. And what does the Rebbe do in these weeks? Transforms it again. Even though there are weeks that have limitations regarding celebrations and weddings and so on, these are days we should learn the laws of Beis Abchira, the laws of the Beis Amidus, because when you learn them, through that, we merit to rebuilding the Beis Amidus. Days when we increase in Teda and in Zdoka, because those two have qualities that counteract the negative effects of the displacement of Golas. Days when we increase in Aves in unconditional and... Um, and uh, unconditional love, baseless love even, even without a reason, to counter-effect the negative effects of sinas chinam, baseless hatred that caused the destruction of the second temple. And other things that we increase doing in light, that of course which is permitted, and we increase in them in order to reveal, to counter the effects of the negative, but also reveal its deeper purpose, which is exactly that. It's not an end in itself. It's, an, it's a means to invoke within us that type of commitment. And that commitment leads into a transformation of ourselves and the world around us and ultimately So that's a general gist and lesson which of course applies to each one of us individually, collectively, our family life, our business, personal life in every possible way. Because we all have our dark moments. We all have our shivasar batamos. We all have the breaches of the walls which was what happened on that day both during this first temple and the second temple. There's another opinion that it happened, Test Tammuz on the first temple, but there are opinions that both happened on the 17th of Tammuz, and everyone agrees that the, the Romans breached the wall on the 17th of Tammuz in the second temple. So we all have our breaches. Breaches, personal breaches, um, betrayals, ways we've hurt other people, schisms, anything that has breached a wall, breached a commitment, breached a trust, a violation in some way is a breach. We don't see it as just a negative, we see it as a, a, a catalyst, an opportunity to correct and make it even stronger than it was before. And that's what the purpose of this um, period in time is, beginning, of course, with this day, 
17th of Tammuz Nitche, and should be Nitche completely, and we should be married to Mashiach and Geula, and we'll never again have to deal with the darker, dark aspect of this day, only with the positive and the light. Okay, it's also Parshas Pinchas. Parshas Pinchas, of course, Pinchas did exactly the same thing. He took a negative and turned it into a positive. Pinchas saw the desecration of God in the last, end of last week's chapter that we read outside of Israel, the desecration by Zimri with, um, with a woman, a Midianite woman, desecrating God's name publicly, and he took matters in his own hands to be Mikadah Shem And because he was a peaceful man, he got the blessing of peace. So he became Brisi Shalom. God gave him my covenant of peace. Because this wasn't just an act of zealot. He was a zealot by nature. He wasn't. He was a quiet person, a person who was more, would not, you'd usually not hear in the headlines. And yet when he saw desecration, he did what had to be done. And he transformed it into a blessing of peace that he received. And for generations to come, we have this story that the end of the story was not just desecration, it was consecration. It was sanctifying God's name. And this, of course, again, is an opportunity we all have, that we have the opportunity to desecrate, God forbid. That's the power people have. Because our behavior, people look at us and, they, and that reflects on God, on Torah, on Judaism, and so on. Or we have the power to, to uh, sanctify, which of course is the objective here. One more thing I want to speak about, even though it was not announced, but I realized that yesterday and today is the moon landing 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the first time a manned moon landing. There were landings before, but it was not manned. 50 years ago. Then it made a big tumult. And the Rebbe actually addressed it, or else I wouldn't have addressed it in Chassidah Supplied. In the year 1969, July 2021, which corresponded then to Shabbos Chazain. So it was a little earlier this year, it was the Ibriyar, so everything is a little earlier. It was Shabbos Chazain, the Shabbos before Tishabov. And the Rebbe spoke about it. And then again, a Shabbos Vaschan and Shabbos Nachamu. So being that the Rebbe spoke about it, let's just review briefly the lessons to be learned. Everything is a lesson in life. The Rebbe said that, big tumul and so on. In a letter actually the Rebbe writes somewhere else, where someone makes a big fuss, look at man has landed on the moon, which was definitely a feat, unprecedented. But the Rebbe writes in a letter, interestingly, which is an aside, but I just want to mention it, that the fact is that everyone knew already decades that the technologies will be, will be available, will be developed soon that can cause, allow man to land on the moon. If you really want a revolutionary breakthrough, look at the breakthrough of physics in the early 20th century. That's what the Rebbe says. Regardless, it was still, when something makes noise, it was a noise definitely from a publicity point of view, and it was also a feat, a powerful feat, even though those that know the technology knew it was possible. But still, it wasn't possible 200 years ago, and it took time, and they did it. So the Rebbe spoke a few lessons. And uh, firstly, he said, there's nothing to be, you know, people say there's also just to be caught up with news, and bitl teda, not be talking about teda, that's not the, what a Jewish, that's not what a human being should be doing. We used to use everything for productive lessons. So the Rebbe focused on three lessons, briefly. Lesson number one is called Yisrael Arevim Zebezeh. He doesn't even say, Yisrael, all human beings are responsible for one another. Because here you see how it's a teamwork. One person doesn't do the job properly, the job can't get done. Whether it was the astronauts in space or the people down below in their, in their positions, Everyone had to do the job. I believe it was over 400,000 people involved. So it shows on communal responsibility and how when we do something, we can put our minds to something. Brings us to lesson number two, the power of echus over kamus. Every detail counted. One detail could affect and undermine and jeopardize the entire mission. 
But another aspect of Eichus and Kamas, apparently from that Sikh, is that human beings, when they apply themselves, they can achieve things that you'd never expect a human being can do. To fly that many miles, so far away, in such precise way, and land, and return, shows the power of quality over quantity. That was lesson number two. And lesson number three was the greatness of God. The Rebbe actually negates those that felt, oh, you know what, human being, look what humans can do. The Rebbe basically negated that and said, no. On the contrary, we see one of the astronauts actually used a verse and they quoted and they said, pray for us. They mean they invoked the name of God. And they used the quote in Tehillim, Ches Dalad, Kapitel Ches, where we say, Ere Shamecha Maisaz Beesecha, Yereik Vikichov Mashakenanta, Hamo Enesh Kitaskirenu Ben Odam Kitsivkedenu. To translate simple words, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, Dovid HaMelech is saying, the moon and stars that you have established, moon, what is man that you should remember and the son of man that you should be mindful of him? In other words, it evokes an element of humility because the more the greatness of man's achievements, the more you see how, what God, how God is even greater because firstly, he created man and second of all, this just tells us the, the little we've achieved, how much more is there out there in the cosmos and beyond. So we look up into heaven and we see who created us. Not only who created us, we see a new magnitude of appreciating the, appreciating the divine by this achievement. The Rebbe also in that Sikha, which I'm not going to address now, spoke about since the topic came up when they landed on the moon, the, the famous question, is there life on other planets? And the Rebbe spoke about it from a perspective of Teir. If any of you want the details, you can look it up in the Sikha, Dvarim Tovshin Chavtes. 1969, I actually adapted that part of the Sikha about life on other planets in an English article. If you want to just send us an email, but you have to give us your email address, go to chsidasupply.com slash ask, and there's the forum there where you can submit your questions completely anonymously. But if you add your email address and say, please send me this article, we'll be happy to send it to you. Okay, and the Shabbos Vashchan and the Rebbe continued the topic. Again, he talked about also some wanted to change the tefillah when we say Kiddush HaChedish, Kiddush HaLavona, that says, through this dance, just like this dance, I cannot reach you. They wanted to say, we, now we could reach the moon. So the Rebbe said, no, with this dance, you can't reach the moon. Meaning a human dance. It's not, it's not discussing technologies that are additional things. You, a human being, cannot reach that place. Others felt it was a somewhat of a minimizing of the fact that Hashemayim la Hashem, the heavens belong to God, and the earth demands, and the Rebbe explains in letters, no, 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 the heaven is far more than the moon and the sun and all the, the heavens that we are aware of in outer space. Heaven is a far, besides spiritual, it's also far higher levels that we humans have not accessed and maybe will never access. So when we say, so of course it doesn't negate, on the contrary, we realize that the moon and all that is also part of earth. It's a place we haven't reached yet. But like many explorations, we reach it, and then we just realize how much more infinite and beyond is the divine. So it brings that humility and it brings that connection, even a yearning of love and awe, as the Rambam writes, that Kate said, how do you come to love and awe of God? By contemplating on the greatness of magnitude of his creations. So this magnitude, this only elicit that type of feeling. So these are lessons from 50 years ago, from that period, as the Rebbe spoke about that summer. Okay, the Rebbe did speak, by the way, a few other times about the landing of the moon when they, six months before that, they, they, they didn't, a man didn't land, but they orbited around it, and then again there were different landings. The Rebbe would often speak about topics like that, especially for the Pegishas, which were twice a year, around Hanukkah time and around summertime. 
So it's sometimes related to conveying that to college students and to professors and so on. Okay. But before we continue, I just want to say, let me just talk about a few cross-references. Part of our uh, rich resources that we provide for you, all now at a new website called chassidusapplied.com, includes the archives of all previous episodes, all for you to access, download, MP3s um, on your iPod, and all different types of podcasts, etc., etc. You can find the role, as I said, at chassidusapplied.com. So a little cross-referencing about the 17th of Tammuz Nitche, especially in Pinchas, episode 74, 124, 170, 218, and 219. Okay. With that, let us move on to a few questions. And again, this is an invitation to everyone. Please present your questions. You have a, not, not a forum where you can write anything. Nothing will be censored. Nothing will be judged. It's frankly, as I said, completely anonymous. And thank God many, many questions keep coming in. I could see from the questions that people realize they're anonymous because, and that's what we want it to be because it, some things are very private and confidential and they should remain so. That doesn't mean we can't address the topic without names and without uh, locations and so on. And that's what we try to do. Since there is a backlog of questions, so please be patient, but we're moving along and the questions keep coming in. So it's like a, uh, an assembly line, let's put it that way. And hopefully I could try to address everything with with justice that it deserves. But again, this uh, program is a limited one. So I try not to speak about anything for hours. Try to speak about it briefly and if necessary, follow up. Try to comprehensively address it with sources and so on. So question, the question that came in, which is not an uncommon question. We've had it before, but it's clearly an existing issue, is the issue of financial anxiety. How can I alleviate financial anxieties. And here's what this fellow writes. I'm a young father with more on the way. I am constantly concerned and anxious about my ability to provide for my family in the present and into the future. I often reflect on the life decisions I've made, which causes me to be greatly frustrated. I feel like I have followed the path as propagated by the Chabad community. Mainly, one, go to yeshiva up until getting married. Two, get married at a young age, early 20s, prior to entering the workforce, pursuing a college degree. Three, start a family young. And it's precisely as a result of these, those decisions that have created this situation of financial concern slash pressure. Whilst I'm aware that the Rebbe instructed when receiving questions regarding financial anxiety that it is Hashem's blessing, which brings success and provides for, for materially, I find myself constantly reverting back to fear, anxiety, and hopelessness when it comes to this. How can I practically cause a change in my thinking to alleviate or manage these concerns? Okay. So first, I did address either directly or, in, or close to directly these top, this topic in episodes 14 and 190. So I refer you to there. In addition, let me say this. I mean, the question is not the first time you've asked it. It's not the question only one person has. We all some way have it. You even go back to the chassidim of the Alter Rebbe. This was one of the common questions, financial anxieties. As a matter of fact, Al Rebbe said a Maimir and a number of Maimarim, a number of times, a number of times, Maim Rabim la Yochlu Rabim, he says, is Daigis Haparnosa. Essentially, financial anxieties, the worries about living, making a living. And it always pressured Jews, especially in those times when there was really poverty. Today, relatively, we have much more comforts than they had. But it was always a, a, a problem because it caused them to be distracted, not be able to focus on learning Torah and doing mitzvahs and doing what you have to do. And it, it caused anxiety, depression, fear, and all the other things that you're mentioning. 
So that doesn't make minimize the issue. I just want to point out it's part of the reality of this material world that we live in a world where we're not in Gan Eden before Echet Eitzadas, where where all our necessities were provided for from above, or in the man in the midbar where it was provided from heaven, bread from heaven. We live in a world, and part of the struggles of this life, including health struggles, including mortality issues, including the anxieties that are not financial, personal anxieties, familial issues, parents, children, so many other things, including, of course, Parnassus, financial, are all included in the purpose of existence, which is that it is a battle, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it again is not to, that this should, should alleviate your concern, but it should be, be known that this is what God wanted. And still, he said, that many that financial anxieties cannot quench the love, which means the inner love that a person connects to God. The question now is how? So for this we go, we learn the law, we learn the, the Maimarim, and we learn the Sfarim that talk about betochem, trust. That not it's not my power alone, but the concept of betochem, which means you have to make a keli, you can't just sit on the sideline, you have to make a shtadlus, an effort, and God blesses, and betochen means doing, the, doing what you need to do, but not excessively, because it's not up to you how much you're going to make. This doesn't mean you shouldn't look for every opportunity, try to find leads, try to find contacts, network, and so on. But you have to remember, at the end of the day, yes, God does bless Parnassim. And for some, that is a menucha, because God forbid, think of a tragedy. I don't want to compare it, but at the end of the day, the only consolation we have is that I will do whatever I can to heal and grow, and that which is beyond my control, I have to let go. Now, of course, you're saying, well, how do I pay a bill? Maybe you have to talk to a new person. Maybe you should find a mashpia that you can just sit and cry on his shoulder, or her shoulder, if it's a woman that's writing this. I'm not sure it sounds like a man, so it should be a man, mashpia. Um, but the same applies, obviously, to anyone there, to a particular gender. As I've talked many times, a man mashpia for a man, a male, female mashpia for mashpia, for a female, for a woman. And talk about it. Because talking, when a person is concerned or has anxiety, it says they should speak about it. And they should distract themselves, as the Rebbe Marash explains. By speaking, you get distracted. Don't minimize not isolating yourself, which is a big part of these three weeks as well. Because these three weeks are, Beinam Tzad means between the dire straits. Every form of tension, anxiety, is reflected in these three weeks. And what are we told? Connect with others. Love, tzedakah, mishpat, learn together. Because the antidote to loneliness, the antidote to weakness and hopelessness is hope. The antidote to solitude is companionship. Finding a group, finding others. We get their strength in numbers. It doesn't have to be a lot of a large numbers. It has to be one, two. People you can talk to. Now these may be things you've tried, but so what? We keep trying and we keep knocking and we do the right thing. Hopefully your wife is a support to you so you can speak to her as well. And remember, at the end of the day, that you both should feel that God blesses a couple. Thank God you have children and I'm sure many blessings in your life. God should bless you. You should have Parnosah Bar Chove, Ashiras even, the Rebbe's Barachah, the Teirah's Barachah, that you should have a livelihood of not just as the necessities, but that every Jew deserves, you should have abundance and wealth. But meanwhile, you have to do whatever it takes and never ever give up hope. You never know where the door will open and in what way it will open. We do not know God's destiny for us. So these are a few words of uh, inspiration. 
especially in this period of time. And again, I refer you to the episodes I mentioned at the outset here. Another question, which is also something I've addressed, but uh, since the question keeps coming up, it's in the news, we'll talk about it. Border wall. What is the Taylor's view on borders and immigration, border control, etc.? Should we be supporting, should we be supporting open immigration, even if it may cause security risks? So let me read it how people wrote it, and then I'll respond. The debate about whether or not to fund the construction of a border wall is in full gear. What does the Torah say about this? Should we build a wall or not? As Jews, this question is poignant. Many of our parents and grandparents are immigrants. Should we support open, open immigration even when it might cause security risks? And I should add, during World War II, we know the doors were closed, so we suffered as a result. People were killed. So we're acutely sensitive to the matter. Another person writes, illegal immigration, invasion. That's his language, or her language. While I'm a Lubavitcher Jew, I'm also staunchly against open borders and illegal immigration. The idea that Jews are for open borders is itself anti-Semitism. Left-wing Jews are for left-wing causes as they have replaced Judaism with a religion of socialism. It is not very different than left-wing Catholics who have replaced Catholicism with left-wing causes. Hence, you can find a lefty person from a Catholic family who supports abortion, although Catholicism strongly prohibits abortion. Okay. That was read uncensored. I don't know if I would have wrote, written it that way. I probably should have maybe limited because many people listen to this and I don't want to get the wrong impression. On the other hand, I am reading things exactly as they're written to me, except when it's uh, deep, deeply offensive. You could argue that was offensive. Well, I read it too late for that. We'll hopefully be more sensitive as we go along. So firstly, I spoke about this in episode 218. Absolutely. In Torah and Halacha, there's much about it. You go to Baba Basra, first of all, the laws of boundaries between neighbors. And then there's the laws of boundaries between countries. And of course, we know Shema Shinchav Tesh and Shilcha Shabbos is all about the boundaries between you and other nations, especially those that are sworn to you to be enemy, and there are laws that apply if they come to speak to you only about Iske Kash V'tevin, simple commerce, what kind of uh, attitude you should have. So it's very clear that in this world, we're not talking about the world of Mashiach will be presentation of Yerushalayim. That the, the, even Yerushalayim, the walled city, the walls will come down. Or there'll be walls of fire, divine walls. That there is a concept that you need to have walls that number one is protection. Number two is boundaries. Just in that speaks Pasha, yesterday's Pasha. Matevu Yaakov. That the, face of, the tents should not face each other. Which also prevents Machlechus. So we see there's an issue, as much as we love each other, as much as we're connected with each other, as much as we have to have a haftarach kamecha unconditional, as I mentioned, boundaries is not the opposite of love. Boundaries is actually a healthy thing. Look in life. There's a boundary between the water and land. There's a boundary between your windpipe and your food pipe. There's a boundary, billions of boundaries that define the structure of existence. And that's what actually allows them to reconnect with each other. The Rebbe has a famous understanding of havdalah. Havdalah means to separate between Shabbos and Chayl. Between Kedush and Chel, between Shabbos and Sheshes Yemeyemaisa, between the holy and the profane, between the mundane and the holy day. So he says that Havdalah is necessary to appreciate the boundary. Once you make Havdalah, then they can unite and they can actually affect each other. So, firstly, conceptually, the concept of boundaries is necessary for every country, for every nation, for every state, because there are laws that apply, there's municipalities, there were boundaries, the Gvulis and Ezusral. Besides the, the Gvul is the general Gvul that Eretz had boundaries with the countries around them, in Eretz there was a section that went, this is this week's Parsha, 
Pinchas. The sex, Achbegel, that's how they divided the land. There was that which went to Ruven, to Shimon, to Levi. No, Levi not, because Levi was in Yerushalayim, did not have the sound land. They had their designated place. Yehuda, and so on and so forth. Every tribe had its boundaries. And if there was a dispute, the Gemara talks about what they did. So boundaries per se is not a negative. Now, of course, you don't want to have boundaries where there's absolutely no, according to the Yashemrim. In the in Pirkeyovis, what is mine is mine, what is yours is yours is Midas Daim. Chsidis explains in Ayim Bays and other places from the Tzimach Tzedek, because there's no symbi- there's no interconnectivity, there's no hiskalulus. We need each other. That would be like the windpipe and the food pipe. Okay, they're separate, but they never communicate with each other. The lung, the food has to be digested. Each part of the body has to do its role. When that role comes, it's like a symphony. Everyone has their particular role to play, but then they have to have to recede or have to give and let the next person play their role and they complement each other. So boundaries is part of the complementation. You need the individuality. Each one has their space, just as it is in marriage. And at the same time, you need the connection. Now, of course, the question is, where do you, where do you draw the line? Do you close the boundaries to the extent that you say, nobody in? A country like America was based as being a haven for those that were less fortunate, other countries that were oppressive, and we, the Jewish people, are the first to have benefited from it. So the country has laws that are connected to, um, to, giving, to giving people who, who need protection from oppressive countries, to give them, um, uh, to give them relief. And, but there are guidelines, because they could be abused. So you need to have guidelines how to give people, um, what's the word I want? I'm looking for? It's on the tip of my tongue. It'll come to me in a minute not refuge, um, to give them, um, <laughs> okay. Um, th- then there are many that abuse it. There are people who abuse it also for trafficking purposes and so on. I think once you, c- you have to clear the air beyond the politics because people also use these issues for political gains and for political battles. The bottom line is, I think, when you sit normal people down, they'll say there are rules and laws. Here's how we have to control it. You cannot have abuse and attack on the boundaries which becomes in- unmanageable. At the same time, you need to have ways to give that type of protection or if they're coming here for good reasons, to give that opportunity. This country is a land of immigrants. I don't think I can in this program give you exact guidelines where the line is drawn. But if you take away politics and you take away personal, personal gains and personal agendas, personal interests, there's no question you can come, with, you can come uh, to, a, to a decision that would make sense Yes, there may be some disagreements. That's why you have courts of law. You take it case by case. People stand in front of a judge and you look at what the story is, what their motivation is. Are they indeed living up to the criteria where the United States will give them um, that refuge that I mentioned? And so on. So the Torah speaks very directly about it in a very balanced way. It's also about relationships, frankly. You have a relationship with someone, even spouses. There needs to be space and boundaries. At the same time, there needs to be closeness as we've talked about many times, where to draw the line, case by case, sometimes it has to be communicated. But the main thing is for sure not to be used or abused by anybody in a way that goes one extreme or the next. Total isolationism, closed boundaries, or total open boundaries, which of course is ridiculous and not appropriate when you're dealing with a country of laws and country of preventing crime, because there's unfortunately too many people who are, um, can abuse and are abusing these uh, the openness of this country and its laws and so on and so forth. Okay. <clears throat> Let's move on 
German products. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Does the Rebbe issue, does the Rebbe address the issue of buying German products today? And the answer is yes, he does. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your very worthwhile program. Asylum, that's the word. <laughs> A little late. Asylum, to give asylum to people who are either political enemies or politically uh, or religiously persecuted by other nations. But that has criteria, what that exactly means. And, and people can use it for their own personal gain, then that needs to be clarified. I don't think you create a perfect system, but you can create a system that can work if people put their heads together. But unfortunately, as we know, the polarization of politics, presidential politics and so on, blinds the eyes or they refuse to really want to cooperate. They don't want to give the president a victory and, uh, and not offering something in return. So there's problems however you twist and turn it. Okay, here going back to German products now. Thank you for your very worthwhile program. I appreciate that you address controversial topics and are not afraid to criticize where necessary. My question is regarding the Indian the idea of not buying German products. How do we understand this in the global marketplace? For example, T-Mobile US Incorporated is a United States-based wireless network operator whose majority shareholder is the German telecommunications company Deutsche Telekom, DT. Its headquarters are located in Bellevue, Washington, or a shoe company that was founded in Germany but is now headquartered in Switzerland. Thanks for your help. Okay, it's a good question. And I don't believe I've addressed it. And there's a letter from the Rebbe actually dated the 15th of Kislev, Tovshin Lamed, 5730. That would be like 1969, actually, 50 years ago as well, the end of 69. Here's what the Rebbe writes, and then we'll talk some more about it. I am in receipt of your letter in which you ask my opinion, quote, as to whether it is a weakness or impropriety to avoid the purchase of goods made in Germany. You add that you ask this question as a Jew in light of Jewish law and custom. Surely this is more a matter of feeling rather than a question of Jewish law and custom. Consequently, as in all matters of sentiment, it is difficult to express an opinion that would have universal application. At any rate, it certainly cannot be categorized as a weakness. On the contrary, a decision of this kind bespeaks strength of will, and all the more so since it entails some inconvenience. No one, nor can it be considered an impropriety, since it is based on a principle which may be considered to come under the category of a remember what Amalek did unto you. For as is well known, the inhuman atrocities, etc., against our defenseless and innocent brethren were not perpetrated by a small group, but were carried out with the knowledge, consent, and even cooperation of the vast majority of the German nation. Moreover, I do not think that anyone seriously believes that the Germany of today is entirely different than the Germany of two decades ago. Okay, well, pretty strong stuff. Now, you could argue, is it still the same way? We're now talking five, five decades more, 70 de seven decades. Well, and also to throw into the equation that uh, many companies that profited, including American companies, that still today have enriched their coffers based on either Jewish labor or the confiscation of Jewish property and so on and so forth. It's a complicated matter, but the Rebbe makes it clear. He's not talking about law and custom. It's a matter of sentiment, and he rules out that it's inappropriate, what he calls, um, whether it's uh, weakness or impropriety. For sure, not that. Whether you should do it, that's up to sentiment, and that's how the Rebbe leaves it. So I'm not obviously going to add to that. I think it speaks for itself, and it's a very, I feel, sophisticated and sensitive answer because case by case. I should add that I personally know of a person who was in the printing business, and many of the printing, printing machines, especially the linotypes and later other technologies, 
the most fine and refined type of instruments were built and by German manufacturers and, and in Germany. So he asked the Rebbe whether to purchase them, and the Rebbe's answer was interesting. When it comes to personal luxuries, the Rebbe said, they're, like he says here, I would say, stay away or go by your sentiment due to these reasons. Maybe the Rebbe didn't say prohibit it, but he definitely had qualification. But he says when it comes to business and your company, a better machine is a better machine. That's like going to a better doctor. It doesn't matter if it's a German doctor or it's a Swiss doctor or it's another doctor. The best doctor, as the Tzemach Tzedek said, According, regarding a bris, that you go to the moil as the best mumcha, expert, not necessarily the greatest Yerushalayim, God-fearing person. So when it comes to machinery necessary for business, go to the ones that are best, that are best for your company. So I did hear that directly from people involved in that. So that also gives you a certain prudent approach, that this is some type of blanket statement based on emotions and so on. It's based on realities. Remember also there was the big debate in the late 50s, or mid-50s, whether to take restitution the Germans were ready to give, and to give restitution millions, if not billions, of dollars to what was called what's now is called the Claims Conference. Basically, money that to 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 uh, compensate for the great loss, both to the people, the victims, and their families, and to the their, the loss of books. Grants were given for publishing. The Sefer Erchim of Rabiel is the head editor is with a grant, as it says in the book, from the Claims Conference, from those with that money. Tovkov Samach Beis and other Maimoria Murazak and printed in the early 60s, also says inside the book from a grant. There were those that said, we can't take the money because it's like whitewashing the Germans. They think with paying money, we, they're forgiven. And the Rebbe's approach, which ultimately um, prevailed, was take the money, the money can help build things, who cares what their intention is? It helps us, it helps us. So that could be consistent with the idea also with the machinery that I just mentioned. Okay. If anybody has more information on this topic, by all means, please share it with me, L'Tayel Sarabim, for the benefit of the public, of the many, many people that listen to this, and I definitely will share it on the program. Next question. It's a painful question, but we deal with everything, so we deal with it. Parental custody. How would Teir Achsidis address parental custody and alienation due to an acrimonious divorce. Dear Rabbi Simon Jacobson, there's a new support group that is growing of single from parents that have gone or going through a divorce and one spouse, one spouse ends up alienating the kids from the other spouse, making up lies against the other spouse and then tells the kids the same against the parent and takes it all to court for years, etc. It becomes extremely painful for the child and the parent. That's why the parents have started this support group. Can you be, can you, write an article or video on this topic for the Froom world. The goal of this group is also a website, phone number, why, ways for parents to connect, ways for parents to connect, and support for each other through this pain. Some example questions. How should you approach guide, etc., a couple getting divorced about what to do that would be, a, be, that would be best for the children? Two. What do you suggest to a parent that is alienating the children against the other parent during a divorce? What is the to- three, what is the Torah's approach to parental alienation? Four, what do you suggest guide a parent that has been already alienated from his children for years, can't see the kid, can't talk to his kids on the phone, missing his kid's birthday, bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah, graduation, etc. Is there examples in Torah that we can learn from? That's five. Maybe Yasef away from his father for 22 years. And finally, oh, that's it, that's five. 
Obviously, it's not uh, only five, there's many more, but that's what this person writes. Basically, there's a lot written now in a form of non-Jewish sources, books, websites, etc. I think the goal here would be a from Torah approach that needs to be helped and support for our parents. Thank you. Yeah, sad, sad. Unfortunately, I deal with this, and it's not easy, because once emotions get involved, sometimes parents, though they love their children, sometimes are blinded. And it, uh, it's hard to distinguish between vengeance and what's good for the children. I'm not here to judge anyone because I understand, or I, at least I can relate to the anguish involved, especially when there was serious betrayal. So every story has two sides, or maybe they say three sides. His side, her side, and the true side. First and foremost thing from a Tehidachsidah's point of view is that the people involved are Negei Bedovah, which means everybody is subjective. You must have a third party that both parties trust. And listen to that third party. A person, of course, that's sensitive, that's Tehidachsidah's base, that will listen, will look at all the circumstances, and may say some things that one parent may not like, or the other parent may not like, or both may not fully like. But it will be best for the children. That's what Tehidachsidah says. That's what the Rebbe would say whenever such a situation comes up. I know it's easier said than done, but I don't have any other real response except that. And that would address all these issues. I can give some general principles, and I will, maybe not in this program, maybe in following programs, I'll just say a few principles. If we begin with bitl, which means we begin what is good for the children, not what is good for me, you're generally in a good beginning. It's a good way to begin. Because then that's the criteria. That's what you ask the question. Is it good for the children not to see their father at all? Now, some people will say, yes, he's dangerous. So fine, if that's established, and objective people have established it, not just the spouse, then you have to look at that. But that's the question. Sometimes it has to be under certain, um, uh, certain, gu- certain guidance and certain supervision, if that's indeed the case. There are many times, and I've seen them many times, accusations are hurled that don't necessarily have a basis. I'm not saying they didn't happen. But you have to have somewhere to go to. That's why we have a Torah. That's why we have chassidus. As far as your other questions, each one of them, when you address it with that bitl that I'm describing, that is to me the key to everything. In guiding a couple, in guiding an individual, and ultimately even guiding the children who probably need also therapy. And the children at some point will want to know why was I not allowed to go another parent? Was it a justified reason? And these things have long-term consequences. So that's why a lot has to be taken into account. There's real serious life and death issues here. I would say life and death in the psychological sense and generational impact. So that's my initial comments. I, I welcome more questions, comments, feedback, anything, because this is a topic I want to address, as painful as it is, because it can help people. And let's address it in a way that maybe someone listening will wake up and say, you know what, there's a point there. Maybe I should look at this a little differently. And this I'm talking on all sides. I'm not taking one side or another side. That's not at all the objective here. Every case is different. You have to know the situation. You have to know the children. You have to know the age of the children. And in other situations, sometimes the mother is the one that has been pushed away. Is that good for the children? What are the circumstances? Do we have an objective picture or people just using their subjective view? Because one of the areas of life which is more difficult than all is divorce, especially ugly divorces acrimonious ones because there's a lot of baggage there's a lot of history and not easy to always see through the clutter so please for the benefit of yourselves and your children if you're in such a situation speak to someone you trust and let them give another opinion even if it's not exactly what you want to hear okay next question okay 
from one controversy to the next, vaccine controversy. What does the Rebbe say about vaccinations? Now, first of all, I did speak about this in episode 146, but there I spoke the halachic perspective, about listening to doctors, listening to Rabbonim, and so on. But here the question was specifically posed about the Rebbe. So I did my research. I'm sure others have as well. I've seen different collections. So let me just give you the gist of it, and let me first read, of course, the questions. This is controversial, and I'm sure not everyone's going to like what I say, but I have to tell you, please keep an open mind. And above all, I'm not saying my own things. I'm not here to paskin, to rule. I'm here to clarity. Clarity is the most important thing of all. Let's get the information. Let's get the facts clear. What does the Rebbe say about this? That's the question, and that's what I'm addressing. Okay, so here's the questions. A few different people wrote it in different terms. I think this is probably going to be a follow-up based on the extent of, of um, uh, correspondence I've received. So let's begin and see how far we can go. What else do we have to go? We have a few other things to cover today, so we'll manage. Question one. Lots of students, now many, many, many questions have come in on this topic. I just selected a few that are a good reflection and a cross-section of the different questions that came in. Number one. Lots of students still out of school for not being vaccinated. Is this giving Hashem any nachas? Of course, referring to schools either who have been mandated by the government or they themselves are mandated not to allow children who are not vaccinating. So this fellow was asking, is this giving Hashem, fellow or woman, I do not know, is this giving Hashem any nachas? What about vaccine choice and informed consent? Parents being coerced into vaccination their children if they want their children in school? That makes sense. The vaccine industry is trying super hard to cover up a lot of not proper things they're doing and make loads of money for each vaccine given. Are we guinea pigs, chas v'shalom? God forbid. We need to unite and the children need to be back in school, whether it's Chabad schools or not Chabad schools. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew, whatever walk of life. If there's an issue, the children shouldn't lose out on learning. They shouldn't lose out on learning for it. The children should still learn in schools and parents and school administrations should meet together and discuss what's necessary. Please shed light on this epidemic that went from just supposedly a measles epidemic to now a sinaschinam epidemic, baseless hate epidemic. What the Yidin went to, into Gaulus for? Okay, that's one person writing. So let me first address that, and then I'm going to go more into what the Rebbe says. First of all, based on everything I say here, this is a position, but you have to remember there are other positions. To say that you're 100% right, you may have some good points, but there's other factors involved. Doctors, Rabbonim, and Al-Tifrish bin Atzibur, which is one of the things that Rebbe brings up. That if every one of us is going to take in our own hands this issue of vaccination, yes, you're entitled to do whatever you want with your children, but your children, you're exposing your children to other children. And there are halachas around that. If you want to make your own little private school with people who don't vaccinate, or you want to homeschool your children, no one's going to do anything about that. So you're right. Whether it's a wise thing to do, that you have to make a decision. But you're dealing here with exposure. to, So it's not a neutral position. Let them just learn. I know it's a very nice, loaded question. Does Hashem have nachas from children not going to school? Come on, let's give, give me a break. Of course it doesn't have nachas. The question is maybe that's why you should vaccinate your children and let them have nachas. Who, who, who rules? Are you a rov? Are you the doctor? So I'm not trying to be critical. I know some of the reasons, and it's true that pharmaceutical industry abuses, and I'm sure they're making money on these vaccines. But you have to basically say there's a conspiracy of almost all the doctors, 
And all the Rabbanim who we go to for questions like this. And as we'll see in a moment, the Rebbe's answers are pretty much consistent. Now, a vaccine that has not been tested, a completely new vaccine, has its own set of dangers, and there's halachas about that too. But we're talking about vaccines that have eliminated polio or measles or other things. Yes, does it have side effects? Could it have side effects? This world is not perfect. People have died from very good medications that have been proven to be effective. We're not discussing there's no risks. But who decides how it should work when you're talking about a community which is not isolated and people are with each other? So just as you convey your position, you have to be able to hear. Can you hear another position? Are you ready to sit down with a school or with a rov or with a doctor and hear another position or only yours? So it's very good to put it into a sinas chinam thing. Some people will say, and I'm just poisoned what I've heard, people say, this is selfish of you. Because you're resting assured that this disease will not spread because other children are vaccinated. So now your child is more immunized as a result. Some people say you're spreading sinas chiman in a way because of your selfishness or your conviction that this is the right thing to do. So how do we decide such things in Teda? We go to objective rabbanim. We go to objective doctors. We can go to more than one doctor to get more than one opinion. And you make a clarity, clarification in all these matters. And we have letters from the Rebbe, which I'll read a few of them shortly. But let me go to the next question. Number two. I don't recall if you spoke about vaccines before. There is a big machlekes, a big argument. What the Rebbe said, and what about now, Efshe Kedai, to do bitl? That maybe now it's time to eliminate vaccines, some are arguing. Number three, did the Rebbe promote vaccines? Lately, there are a lot of groups trying to spread awareness that vaccines have side effects of autoimmune diseases and weakening the immune system, etc. What was the Rebbe's advice? In addition, if the Rebbe was for it, and now new studies are being made against it, can we assume the Rebbe gave advice at the time which applies to us today? Okay, there are some more questions. And because time is limited... I'm going to do the other questions next week. One, one, two. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of other questions, and I will, I will read them, because I think they're important, and all kinds of different opinions, and actually alternative approaches, which I've, I found that all of them are helpful to me. I don't have a position one way or the other. I don't even have children that age any longer. I have grandchildren. I lead their parents to decide. But all these, all these opinions are valuable, even the ones that I may... He gave a counter-argument because I want to make this into a discussion that's a menschlechech siddhashe teda discussion, which isn't about me or you or anybody. It's about how the teda looks at this, and the teda addresses more controversial topics than this. Trust me. This is a controversial one. And there's a teda in halachadika way. So there are more questions, at least two and a half, another half, I would say, one. Okay. There's three more pages of questions. So we'll deal with that next week. There'll be a follow-up. Lineder. So here's the answer. Let's, I'm going to start with an answer based on a few answers from the Rebbe. So in addition to what I said in episode 146, which I mentioned, which was more the halacha, there's the Rebbe has a view on this matter in a bunch of letters, and I will cite the letters exactly where they are. Now, I want to say something just overall, which then I will read some of these letters. Overall, Cloud the Rebbe, in general the Rebbe, was always opposed to anything intrusive that affects a person's internally whether it's new medications, whether it's uh, contact lenses, whether it's invasive surgeries and so on. Because the Rebbe wanted it to be tested. But once it was tested, there's the concept of we give a doctor the permission to heal, which includes the doctor making decisions. And the Rebbe would want to know what a doctor has to say. 
You need more than one opinion, you get more than one opinion. You're not going to find from the Rebbe a, a blanket overall rejection of vaccination. So in case you're looking for that, I have not found such a smoking gun, just for the record. You'll find a general approach to follow the Rebbeim, to follow doctors, and to follow the fact that it's been tested. And if it hasn't been tested, the Rebbe said, make sure it's tested. Make sure to go to a laboratory with the testing. To jump on that and make it sound like the Rebbe is saying that no vaccinations until it's tested, the Rebbe clearly says it was tested. And I'm going to read a few letters that testify to that. We're talking now, going back to 1957, where vaccinations really began in the 50s. There was the polio, the Salk, the Salk vaccine and others, and measles and, and, and chicken pox and uh, smallpox, which of course was conquered. So the Rebbe wrote a reply... And um, he wrote it in, in uh, special delivery because he said it was so important. Regarding your question about inoculations against disease, I'm surprised by your question since so many individuals from the land of Israel have asked me about this. And I've answered them in the affirmative. Since the overwhelming majority of individuals do so here in the United States, successfully. Understandably, if there are inoculations that are produced by multiple pharmaceutical companies, you should use the ones whose product has been safely tried and proven. Igris Kedish, volume 14, page 357. To Neshea of Israel, the Neshea Bnei Chabad of Israel wrote to the Rebbe, this was a collective organization, it wasn't an individual. In reply to your letter about my opinion regarding the Salk vaccine to provide protection for the children, Shlita, against Polio, the Rebbe doesn't add that, I'm just adding it. This vaccine is customarily used in many countries in the United States. Almost all children are successfully vaccinated. Thus, it is proper for you to do so as well. Okay, the Rebbe continues. With regard to your question as to whether the inoculations should be done with a vaccine that comes from outside of Israel, one that is produced locally, understandably this depends on the reliability of the drug manufacturers. Many reliable ones are found in the United States, and I am sure that the same applies to Eretz Yisrael as well. Therefore, make your final decision after you have learned all the details and which is of better quality. Igris Kedish, volume 14 again, page 238. Earlier than that, in 1956, this is the second Sivan, Tavshin Tezvav. Actually, no, that wouldn't be 56. That would be 55. The Rebbe wrote, in reply to your letter in which you asked my opinion about the injections that are commonly given to young children, it is with re- regard to matters such as this, such as these, that the axiom, Al-Tifrish do not set yourself apart from the community, applies. You should act according to that which is done by the majority of children who are in your children's classes. Volume 11, Igris Kedish, page 137. Even as the polio vaccine effectively eliminated the dreaded disease, there were instances where faulty shots actually brought about illness. So the Rebbe is now addressing that issue, that there was side effects, illness. In the winter of 59, the 9th of Shvat, Tavshin Yud Zayin, 1957, the Rebbe addressed this issue. The event that occurred in the United States was at the beginning of the use of the vaccines, before the medical compound was definitively established. This is not the case at present after months of experience with the vaccine. Therefore, once the vaccine's reliability is firmly established, there's no worry. To the contrary. Volume 14, page 343. Okay, now there's more. But I'm going to stop here because this will be two parts. So by no means is this exhausted or finished. There'll be more to say. But I began. And I will talk more things and also different angles to this as well. So please don't draw any conclusions. 
except of what I've said so far. So simply time is limited. So there'll be a part two next week on the issue of vaccinations and the Rebbe's view. Because I still have to address the issue with the things changed today. If something's found out today is dangerous, the question is how do you determine if it's dangerous? Is it some one person, other people? So we'll address all of that as we go along. We're now going to go to some follow-up. Yeah, this is a very, pretty packed episode. So follow-up number one is about older singles. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to respond to the remarks you made in episode 263 on the letter I sent you. I believe it was on episode 263, the issue was about sensitivity toward, others, toward older singles. To me, it sounded like you were talking from both sides of your mouth. First, you said we should be sensitive to older singles and the like, but then you said, well, we don't have to walk on eggshells and bend over backwards not to hurt someone's feelings, and we don't have to make a decree to change the custom of saying a mitzvah shem by you. First, I want to respond. Why shouldn't we bend over backwards not to hurt someone's feelings? Secondly, I think you missed the message in between the lines. The blessing of a mitzvah shem by you is only half the problem when it is wished in the wrong circumstances. I would like to share with you some of the harassment I have received, as well what I have heard from others at Simchas and other places as well. An individual would say, Nu, when are you getting married? And Rab Simon, this is in front of other people. And they usually won't stop until I remove myself from the area. In my opinion, this is plain harassment and worse. In response to these people, I want to say, if we need someone to nudge us in the right direction, we have family for that. Secondly, no one knows someone else's nishenis, tests, challenges. So I would recommend them to shut their mouths and think before they talk. We're human beings as well. In conclusion, Rab Simon, I want to let you know that I'm not angry. However, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't painful. I'm not writing to you to whine and vent. So why am I writing to you? The answer is because Hashem granted me the talent of self-expression through the pen. In this case, it's through the keyboard. So I won't remain silent. I will speak out as long as people like yourself will read it. Thanks, Rab Simon, for doing the show. We live in very dark times. So thanks for shining a little light. Hatzlach Rabbah, obviously, Israel applied equals Mashiach now. Okay. So I, I didn't go back and listen to what I said, but uh, I first of all, I apologize if it sounded insensitive. I do stand by the fact that we need two sides to this because stop protecting people and like never talking, then you'll start saying, you know what, why am I being ignored? Don't they realize I'm not married yet? How come no one's ready me him? And you'll ask people, why don't they? Because this person was insulted last time I read a shidduch. So it's not that simple as you make it. I totally stand behind the sensitivity and everything you've written. That's why I read it. And if I sounded like some way insensitive, as I said, I apologize. There has to be complete sensitivity. But sensitivity also, would, we're addressing adults here. And adults means sometimes we have to talk about things. And I agree to say a mitzvah shem by you and that's it. And not add these hurtful words new and start harassing. Obviously, we, I, I agree with you. The mitzvah shem has to be done with discretion. That's what I said, if I recall correctly. Depending on the case, depending what you say. And the worst thing area, they may have said something that you feel a little hurt by. You know what? We move on. People's intentions are not necessarily bad. Some people do have bad intentions. So that's what I wanted to just add, and I agree with your letter. That's why I read it. Next follow-up. Just wanted to point out about BPD in episode last episode, 268. This is a little embarrassing on my end, but so be it. This is what, to, uh, this is what I bought into when I started this program, so here we go. Just wanted to point out from Rabbi Jacobson's class last Sunday, someone had written in his letter about Shaduchim this was, Shaduchim, whether you're supposed to tell about something you hear about a person, that you know about a person, that that person has BPD. Rabbi Jackson explained that, that as bipolar disorder. If the person wrote BPD, bipolar disorder, then it was what it is. But actually BPD, 
written plainly, is borderline personality disorder. A very different and in many ways much more difficult mental illness as there's no medication for it and the only known therapy that helps is DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, which extremely, is, is extremely intense and very expensive. I don't think it needs a correction, but for the future, or if you tag the classes, then it's good to know. Batzlocha and continue the great work. No, I do think the correction should be made. It was BPD, to be honest. And yes, I either I read it quickly and I just thought it would be a bipolar without focusing. But the issues that I addressed apply equally. As a matter of fact, it's even more so because by, by bipolar is more controllable, as you mentioned. And borderline is more difficult. So then, of course, the challenge is a more difficult one. And yes, as I said then, you cannot keep such a thing silent completely. You have to know when the timing and whom to say it to. That goes back to that episode, which I'm not going to repeat again. Now, this anti-Semitism, I realized, I've been reading every few weeks some section. It's a very good long letter about a person who dealt with this and addressing the issues. But I realized, since a lot of it is not the approach I would take, you know what, that if anybody wants to get this letter, I'm happy to share it with you. It's a long letter about all the different anti-Semitic responses to anti-Semitism. Obviously, many of them we can't respond to, but some you can. So if you're interested in it, instead of me reading it here, I'm, I'm just going to stop here. I read a few parts of it. So just send me an email at chassidahsupply.com um, slash ask. And with your email address, and I'll send you the full letter. It's a very good letter. It covers a lot of interesting points. Okay, now let's go to the chassidah's question for this week. Chassidah's question. Where do the five senses belong in context of the ten faculties which correspond to the ten spheres? So to read a little more in detail. One second here. A lot of pages. Okay. Ria Shmiya is the title. Thanks, Rabbi Jacobson, for this program. We learned that the Neshama consists of Esosphiris. Be more precise, Ten Sphiris, Shenishtal Shlomehem, the Altar Rebbe says in the beginning of Tanya, the Esokeches Hanefesh, the Ten Faculties that evolve from the Ten Sphiris. Where does the power of vision and hearing that comes from the Neshama fit into the Esosphiris? So hearing and, the vision and hearing is of course from the five Chushim, that we have five senses. Vision, hearing, taste, smell, and then there's either speech or there's a touch, but uh, the five senses. So, interesting question and good question, because there's only ten spheres, not nine, not eleven. So, for, so there's. Let's begin with the Maimonim where this is this discussed. Very interesting Maimonim. It begins with Al Tareb, of course, the founder of Chabad Chassidus. In a Maimer Tachas Ashaloy Avadato Besimcha Vetuv Levov from Parsha Kisove, a Maimer that was said Chayesora Tovkuf Samach Beis. That's the equivalent of the year 5562. So that would be essentially 17... Uh, where are we now? We're now in 19... Um, 1802. 1802. Okay. And then it's also printed, printed in my modern Tovkuf Volume 1, and a similar mimer in the Salah Lozhniya from the Alter Rebbe. The Mitla Rebbe has elaborate mimer on this, 
elaborates on it. The same Dibra Hamaschil, Tachzor Sholei Avadato, said 5579 in the year 1819, exactly 200 years ago. It's printed by Moriad Murazak in Dvarim, volume 2, on that verse. Okay, then let's move forward. I have not found in my modern from the Tzemach Tzedek, and Tzemach Tzedek has Kitsurim on the Mimer of the Alter Rebbe, an elaboration. As a matter of fact, the Sefer Lekutim, which I worked on, I don't see an Erech Hushim altogether, an Erech on census, just for the record. The next is the Rebbe Rashab. In my Mimer called Vayikri Yaakov, the first one, Tafresh Ayin, Eter, um, yeah, that's Eter, good. Chayesor Tafresh Ayin Tes, 100 years ago, 100 years from the Mitle Rebbe, and 100 years before us today. In the Sukkot Maimorim of Tafresh Pei Dalad, that's from the Frigge Rebbe, which is reprinted in Tafshin Tes, in Hazinu and Sukkot Maimorim of Tafshin Tes, and then the Shvus Maimorim of Tafresh Tzadik Zayin, and Tafshin, reprinted in Tafshin Yud. So there he talks about the topic, and briefly, he makes it very clear. The Koiches HaNefesh, which is the faculties of the soul, are essentially the structure of existence. Firstly, the ten spheres, Eris and Kalim, energies and containers. And it evolves in the human being, soul within a body, and then the soul's faculties, the soul's energies, in each part of the body. In general, it breaks into ten. Chabad, Chagas, Nehim, Meichen and Midas. So you have the power of Chochmeh in the Meichah Chochmeh, power of Bina in the Meichah Bina. So they're localized, and each one has this particular tailored energy to a container. In truth is, we have many more faculties. We actually have 613 faculties. Like when you say the power to walk, the power to talk. We're not talking now about the senses. We'll get to that in a minute. The power to, talk, to uh, write. These are called Kayach HaKsivah, Kayach These are all faculties, but they, they are breaking down from those 10. It breaks down into the others, which is not the discussion right now. They are defined very clearly to define the structure of existence. Then the Maimonim, from the beginning from the Alter Rebbe and the others that I cite, said, then the Ebrist also added five Chushim. Chushim are very different. Chushim have a far, far more minimal energy. The Kreichus nefesh actually reflect the Nefesh. They are expressions of the Nefesh. Whereas the, what he calls the the chushim are all connected in the Lashon of Kabbalah, Havolim. Havolim is like a cavity, a narrow cavity. The eyeball, the eye sockets, the ear, drum, the nostrils, the mouth. It doesn't talk about touch. So the flow of energy is a very minimal one. And that's why we're called Kabbalah, Havolim. So they don't have that intensity and expression of the soul's powers, so to speak. And yet, and yet, they have something that the, the faculties don't have. And that is that they have, in this limited uh, cavity, they have the ability to, to experience tremendous pleasure. Tainug atzmi. That all the pleasure you have from the mind and emotions doesn't come to the pleasure when you see something beautiful and how much it draws you. Literally, they describe the hypnotic power of how sight seduces us. It could be for the good, it could be negatively. Same thing with hearing a beautiful song with a scent that can actually revive the neshama. Spices that are meshivas and neshama, they can return there for someone who's fainted. The same thing with speech, with beautiful speech and the tainug of somebody speaking more than just learning. 
And go, you can look in the Maimorim. So there's a Tainug Atzmi that comes from that. What, so therefore the Kreichas have the quality that they're the structure, the powerful energies each in their containers. Chushim give us a taste of a reality that's beyond the structure of Tainug from Atik. And that's why the experiences, the Aved Pitam Vedas, when a person serves God in a structured way, connects more to the faculties, because also the Adam Elyon has faculties, the ten spheres. When you learn Teda, you connect with the God's mind. Uh, when you love God, when you love other people, you're connecting to God's heart. But the Chushim, when you Malka, when you contemplate on the beauty of God, when you see some things that when we go, for example, in, uh, in three times a year to see the base of Midrash, mitzvahs that are connected to seeing or to hearing a beautiful voice, a beautiful song, or things that are connected to spices like ketodos and so on, that le- leads us into the tainu. But there, it's coming in a very small cavity because it cannot be contained by the faculties because they're far more structured. A few other differences that he makes is that the kreiches nefesh transmit, they're mashpia to others. For example, love, you transmit. The faculties, is, the chushim, the senses are not about transmitting. When you see something beautiful, it's for you. You can talk about it. But the chush itself is a personal experience. The kreiches define the essential human self. The chushim are like gates that experience something outside of yourself. Because if you don't have chushim, you still have all your faculties. Sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell speech is only because of another. You, need, you, don't, you don't need sight to see yourself. You don't need ears to hear yourself, to smell yourself, or to, or to um, or touch yourself, or to, um, what's the fourth, fourth what did I say? Uh, sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. Or to taste yourself. So these are gates, gateways. That's why sometimes it's referred to the Sha'arim, Sheftim, Vishetim, Titl, Chabachal, Sharecha, talks about these five gates, or seven gates. Because the two nostrils, the two, ear, the two ears, and the two eyes. So these are chushim, these are like gates between the inner city and the outside. That's what chushim are. Another difference is that the kreiches conceal the core soul and the chushim reveal the core soul. Another difference is, in Tavshintesi says this especially, the kreiches are mamshich the soul, they draw down, and the chushim, the senses, Unite the soul, connect to the unity of the soul, which in turn means that the faculties focus more on the matter. Spirit is subjugated to matter because the kreiches have to manifest themselves and express themselves in a very tangible way. Whereas the chushim is more the focus on the spirit, chush, to give you the sense, like when you explain something, an idea, not just the details of the idea, but a sense of something higher, something transcendent, something sublime. So this is things you can look up in these Maimonim, and that's a general difference. So that's why the ten kaychus talk about the structure, the five chushim is talking about bringing an experience from beyond the structure within the structure, and that's why they have both extremes. On one hand, they're very narrow and very limited, but on the other hand, they have a connection, a link straight to the pleasure itself, tainug, that is more concealed in the regular faculties. He also talks there a lot about the difference between each chush, how each one has a different level, and Riyya ultimately seeing vision is the most powerful one, but also at the same time, also the most one that connects to something outside of you. Because you don't, you don't, you don't, what you see is, doesn't become internalized, as when you hear something, it's listened and absorbed. What you see is outside, but an effect on you, it can be deeper than listening. Okay, let's now go to the three essays. So we have three essays, as we do every week, of the 2019 contest. These are the top essays. These are still now in the top um, 
30 essays. So they're still high up there among the hundreds and hundreds that came in, close to 1,000, I believe. So essay number one in Hebrew, Okay. Which means to deal with anger and, um, and, and frustration and being upset. Chayim Mushke Banar, age 17, Tzfas, Israel. A student in seminar based Chana, Tzfas. So exactly that, the topic talks about that from, from the, my youngest age, from the time when we were born, we have to deal with the different challenges in school, in kindergarten, in school, in army, and when we travel, wet marriage, and so on. And we will always be challenged by people of that will provoke us, and that will frustrate us. To the point that it becomes like almost automatic, a knee-jerk reaction. And we don't always have control over our own reactions. This essay will address that, the conflicts within us. She brings from, a, from different psychiatric studies that talk about this. And of course, talk about the, how a person loses control and they become, and what are the consequences of that, of lack of control when a person gets angry. And then the solutions from Chassidus. Step one, patience. You have to wait. You can't jump. Don't ever react impulsively. Number two, everything starts from the head. You have to reflect. The mind has to take control, not the emotional. Second, you have to look at yourself to be able to look I'm sorry, no, that God is looking at us, accountability that you're being watched and you're accountable, you're not just whatever you do. Number three is why you created, to give or to take, and never to give up. This is essentially the, the structure, and then it goes on, self-control, with a whole bunch of different graphs that really make the case, very, very good essay, because it addresses something we all have to deal with, which is self-control, especially times that we really get out of control. So thank you for that. This and all the other essays that I'm going to mention are posted as we speak at Meaningful Life. I'm sorry, at chsidasupply.com essays. You also can receive them in your inbox if you um, subscribe to our weekly email, which has other benefits as well. Next essay, the honor of your presence is requested. Esther Rachel Al-Kaim, age 31, Bell Harbor, Florida. Shlichus Chinuch Business. Another very well done essay. He's a regular and has presented, submitted essays a number of years. Some of them have reached high up. And I wish her next year to win, be the first prize winner. But that still doesn't take away from this excellent essay. The honor of your president. Who are you? A very simple question that elicits a myriad of answers. Yaakov Cohen, Miriam Goldberg, a mother, a student, a rabbi, a lawyer. We often answer this question with either our name or our profession, but is that who we truly are? In this essay, in this essay we will try to discover who we truly, truly are at our essence. In doing so, we will explore the secular view versus the Hasidic view of personal worth, which will shed light on a very common and stifling modern-day problem, low self-esteem. The secular view will be mostly based on influence, science, and practice by Dr. Robert B. Not sure how to pronounce this, Cialdini or Cialdini, and the Hasidic view on the Tanya, that Lubavitcher Rebbe is Maimorim, and Sichas. It goes on to do exactly that, compare the secular view, then the Torah view on this topic, and the Hasidic illuminations, and finally an application in discovering yourself with a bunch of bullet points, very top, top-notch essay, in my view. 
with a beautiful conclusion, well annotated, well worth reading. So thank you. And finally, essay number three today will be, again Hebrew, Hagan Shalanushes. Hanan Zohar, 835, Migdal Emek Israel. Mora, a teacher in Beis Chabad, Migdal Emek. And Umar, also a presenter. In this essay, we will try to dis- uh, clarify the world in which we live. Whether the nature of human beings in the world is evil or fundamentally good. Are we living in a garden or in a jungle? And goes on to speak about the different perspectives on this. The negative perspectives and the positive perspectives from psychology, from philosophy. The first approach, that it's a negative world. The other approach is it's a positive world that needs to be revealed. The pros and cons of each. And then ultimately the chassidish approach that the world is a good place in truth. And then, of course, that we are dynamic human beings that grow and evolve, and we're not stuck in any particular way. Goodness that is not fantasy. And then a final conclusion, again, with applications and practical exercises. So thank you for that. This episode has gone a little longer than usual because of many topics. So let me conclude as the, as the, as the fast concludes. May this day that was nitche from Shabbos be nitche completely, pushed away completely and transformed. Because we don't just push away, we transform into great light and great celebration. The three weeks should be transformed to three weeks that the Rebbe says is three can be the Besamir Shashlishi, indicating the power of three of Teferis. And the real inner power and significance of these days should all be revealed in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. We are here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please continue to post your questions, send us your comments, feedback, anything that you may feel can help this program grow in any possible way. And of course, your support, both moral, spiritual, psychological, and financial support at, at chsidasupply.com sponsor. Thank you so much. And um, may this fast go right into a, uh, a Suda. And then, as I said, ultimately the Suda with Mashiach, Sidkain and Gula, Amitis Vashlema.